Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Istvan Janadi, uh, CEO and founder of Shaper 3D, the world's most intuitive modeling app for iPad, Mac, and Windows. They're VC-backed, have won the Apple Design Award, and are on a mission to make CAD innovative and simply great. Super exciting to have you here, Ishvan. Thanks for having me, Anna. It's great to be here. Awesome. All right. Well, actually, uh, it's my colleague who I have to thank for the introduction when he first uh, came up to me and said, hey, you want an intro? I was like, oh, of course, sure. I was so excited. And then I was like, okay, this is this is a new industry for me. And um, I went to the website, of course, started my research and I realized that I actually used it. Uh, so I have <laughs> a funny story. Um, when I got married, I realized that my husband has uh, a workshop at the garage with all kinds of uh, tools for woodwork, including like all the like super difficult, hard to operate machines. Um, and of course, I had to, you know, get my hands there. <laughs> So uh, I started researching, like, how do I make it all work? And I wanted to create a lamp. And obviously, like, it turned out I needed uh, a design. And all the tools that I, I tried to um, to research and use were, like, super difficult. And then the one I ended up using was actually Shaper 3D. Mm. <laughs> I had to abandon the project like after because I realized that once you make, um, you create a model, then, you know, you have to find wood and then you have to work on it and then you have to, <laughs> so it's a lot yeah, of work. Yeah. It, it doesn't make itself. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, um, Funny, That's the hard um, part, actually. <laughs> right, right. So funny yeah. enough, I used it. Very, uh, very interesting. But, um, uh, and this is going to be one of my questions. You know, I'm just a totally, uh, like, out of nowhere coming to your website and, and eventually using it, kind of uh, not even a customer, just a user. Um, does it happen a lot? Like, do people just, you know, stumble upon Shaper 3D and just use it for like amateur projects or are you mostly for, for professionals? I, I'd say that we are mostly focusing on professionals, but we are getting a lot of non-professionals too. So uh, like for the, the needs of our professional customers define our roadmap and our product strategy, but uh, the ease of use and the intuitive nature of Shaper 3D has this this uh, side effect that that our product is loved by non-professional designers too, not just by professionals. And we have a very significant uh, hobbyist, prosumer, maker user base too. Most of them are obviously using the uh, the uh, the free version of Shaper 3D, and uh, and among our paying customers. Uh, the majority of our <clears throat> revenue is coming from uh, from from professional users. Okay, all right. So I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm I'm the smallest part of your uh, of your user base. Uh, okay, so let's let's That's get not back that to true. So like you, you're probably you're a bigger part of our user base, but a smaller part of our paying customer base. Oh, okay, interesting. All right. Yeah, so, uh, so so we have a lot of pre pre hobbyists. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I wouldn't call myself even that. <laughs> but uh, let's get to the beginning. Um, can you talk a little bit about your background? How did you get uh, here in the first place? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I told this story probably a thousand times before. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, this is a big part of, when you are raising around, like, this is a big part right. of, of, of the story and the pitch, like how you got here. And, and to, I, I'm in a very lucky position that to me, it kind of feels like that I was trained in my entire life to do this, like, like build this particular company. So I started coding when I was uh, six years old. Um, my, my brother wanted to be a, a software engineer. And um, he taught me how to how to write code. Um, eventually, he he became an architect because in the end of the 1990s, he was told that there are already too many software engineers out there, so he should not oh, become a yeah. software engineer. <laughs> so he became an architect because you know, like you, you always need architects. Uh, well, uh, and then so he became an architect, and then I learned CAD from him. He's like 10 years older than I am. And I was just sitting next to him on, on Saturdays and I was watching him using uh, traditional CAD tools. And I just learned how to use CAD and, and 3D graphics applications from him uh, when I was a teenager. And then, so I had these two hobbies, like nerdy hobbies <laughs> uh, when I was growing up. And then, uh, then uh, when, the, when the iPhone was launched, uh, I was already, well, uh, an Apple fanboy, more or less. Uh, I had like I um, I got the first iPod from my dad to, for Christmas, and I fell in love with it. So I I was following the story of Apple with great excitement, and um, and I was I still remember that when I was watching the the iPhone keynote, and I just got like so excited. Uh, it felt like that oh like I've just seen what the future will look like, and um, I immediately you know, like started thinking about like how to build something for these new devices, how the future will look like. And by the time the iPhone SDK did not exist, right? So it was a completely closed ecosystem by the time uh, the App Store was a couple of years away or, or a year um, away. And, uh, and we didn't really even have like the hope that we can ever build applications for these, this new device. But, um, but a few months later, um, a group of um, a group of uh, really enthusiastic hackers came up with the jailbroken SDK for the iPhone, and then you suddenly started like you suddenly got access to this new device, and you could uh, build basic applications for for the iPhone. So I immediately started building apps for for the iPhone, and uh, and then a year later, when Steve Jobs announced the the App Store um, and the official SDK, I started building my own app with a friend of mine. Uh, we spent, uh, we were we were still like university students, and we spent our entire summer building our first app in the first uh, in, in, in in the summer, and uh, and uh, our first app was in the App Store just um, three weeks after the App Store was launched. So it was like one wow. of the first and like thousand applications in the App Store, and we made like twenty thousand dollars or something like that, which was an awful lot of money for two university students, right? Like it's like right. it's a lot of money. And <laughs> and that was the first time when I felt that, hey, you can actually build software and make money by building software. And that was that was a very, very exciting experience. And um 
so so a few years later um i spent a, a few years at um at an enterprise saas company i didn't really enjoy that that environment so i eventually i quit my job and i decided to like uh start my own company and you know, like the choice was quite obvious like for me it was like you know like there was cad <laughs> there was the evolving apple ecosystem uh there was this very stagnant industry that really like did not change for 30 years um and there was my excitement about the manufacturing software industry and uh <laughs> and i just combined all of these and this is how shaper got started basically it it originally started as as a as a pad project as a side project um and i was just uh playing around with uh with a 3d geometry engine uh, that i ported to uh to ios uh in a in, in a few months and then um then it evolved to something more when the first rumors about the uh, ipad pro came out in 2014 I immediately quit my job because I thought that, oh, hey, like this is an exciting opportunity. Like Apple is going to launch a new platform. And, um, you know, the rumors were saying that the iPad Pro was going to be a completely different iPad. It's going to be much more powerful. It will have a different input device, the Apple Pencil. And um, and I thought right. that, hey, like this can be a this can be a platform shift. Like this is something that that can actually like transform how we think about our computers um or at least it's going to introduce a new device category we could reinvent cad for these these new type of devices so i quit my job um and then it turns out that apple slipped with the development of the ipad pro so they did not release the ipad until the end of 2015 so i just bootstrapped the company or bootstrapped the project for 18 months or two years and i burned all my savings during that time uh i uh, i almost went bankrupt <laughs> by the end, end okay. of those couple of years I, I i literally had like a like a a couple of weeks of personal runway left <laughs> i had like 200 bucks on my on my bank account or something like that and then apple announced the ipad pro finally and then i uh texted one of the uh, prominent local angel investors um and uh, he he saw the opportunity in in Shaper and he invested just fifty thousand dollars, and that's how Shaper three D started. Like that's the long story short. Okay, that's a perfect um, script for a Hollywood movie. Like start a founder. <laughs> awesome. All right, I really like it. Uh, but uh, I, I've got a few questions. So first of all, I mean. Um, having a nerdy hobby usually pays off like what again what i learned from the podcasts uh i i mean this is super cool right and uh, it's one thing like having a nerdy hobby and just being good at it and a totally different thing you know applying uh it on something that you know that can earn you money and something that can scale and this is what yeah. you did and by the looks of it you know uh, pretty successfully uh another thing um when something you said and something that I, I compare my own experience with, um, you said you you told this story a thousand times to the investors. And what I've heard from investors while I was pitching, um, someone would say, you know, never tell your personal story, like how you came to, to build a product unless you're like changing the world or curing cancer. So 
um, <laughs> okay, how do you I, feel about it? And I, I don't like my my, my my personal experience is quite the opposite. Like, <laughs> okay. usually, like if if you're not telling the story, like the second question is that, like, what's the story? Like, <laughs> I, okay, I, I, I think that the story is probably the most important if you are building something ambitious, right? Uh, but if you're not building something ambitious, then you just shouldn't raise money. <laughs> um, okay. Because building something ambitious requires enormous drive. Um, and it requires such a drive that it has to last for a decade. Because building something that is like eventually going to be big, and by big, I mean like a, a multi-billion dollar company that, that defines an industry, that's something that you cannot build overnight. Uh, especially if you are building something that is like really, really complex and has enormous depth and breadth. So like, CAD is one of these <laughs> industries where, where products are enormously complex and, and, and technically it's extremely challenging to build something like, like a CAD system. But obviously it's not the only industry. Just think, think of Webflow, for example. Webflow is one of my... Uh, favorite companies, uh, I think in many ways they are similar to to Shaper, and uh, and you know like for the founder for Vlad, it took a lot of time to build even like a very small MVP of of their product, and it's still you know like it's still like um, they're still improving the product a lot every month. It's a uh, and you know like when when you are building something like like this, when you are building something ambitious, something that that when you are actually serious about disrupting an industry and building an industry defining company that doesn't happen overnight that that takes like 10 years 15 years and for that you need something that is just forcing you through that decade to you know, just just you pursue greatness and pursue like this this unbelievably ambitious goal um, and if you don't have that right, and that, that drive somehow always goes back to your background, like how you grew up, what you're excited about, right? And that's the most important thing. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay. All right. Well, that that makes sense. I mean, uh, for me too. Like, how do you how do you know this problem? How you're related to it? Because it's it's one thing to just try and take something that maybe needs improvement and people are ready to pay for it, and it's another thing when you know you've experienced this. But uh, okay, so you learned CAD when you were a teenager, right? How did you know that it needed improvement? How did you know that you you are 
uh, going to change the uh yeah. the industry and cad is not not just a design tool right it's also a documentation tool but you're kind of as far as i know moving away from this yeah actually it's like traditional cad i would say it's like traditional cad systems are much more focusing on documentation than design or original the reason why my cad systems were created in the 1980s 1990s uh, what we call cats today these tools were replacing drafting 2d drafting like manufacturing documentation so like the design work was not supposed to happen in, necessarily in CAD. it was more like about documentation yeah and that, and certainly like that was part of our strategy uh in the early early years of shaper that um we realized that you can't just build a full featured traditional CAD competitor from scratch because it takes well it's hard to tell how long, but it takes like like I think like six to ten years to build a CAD system, right. like an actual CAD system, even an entry level CAD system. And there there are like no shortcuts, really. Like there are no shortcuts. So until you get there, you have to find an adjacent use case that is meaningful and useful enough for your target audience, so that that you know, like it, it keeps you going until you you get to uh, get to that that point where you can actually position yourself as a replacement tool and and that adjacent use case for us was conceptual design prototyping ideation sketching the early stages of the design process and basically in the last six years we have been adding more and more and more to shaper so that we are covering more and more and more of the entire design process and i would say that we're still not a full featured CAD system. There are still many, many feature gaps that we have even today compared to an, even to an entry level CAD system. But in many ways, we are much better than a CAD system because, because for certain use cases, we, we can just do things that a traditional CAD system cannot do, right? And it's a long list of things that we can do <laughs> that traditional CAD cannot do that our customers find extremely valuable and using Shaper 3D together with their legacy tools and uh, and but we're working really really hard to be able to tell our customers in a couple of years that hey like here is shaper and now you can do most of your job in shaper without switching to another tool in the end of the ideation sketching prototyping phase and you know it's not something that that happens overnight this is something that and there is like no there isn't like a step function that hey suddenly we implemented this or that feature and Oh, hey, like now, now we can replace like the traditional CAD system because it's, first of all, this industry is extremely horizontal, extremely complex, has enormous depth. So you can get there, but it takes a lot of time and you have to build step by step, function by function, vertical by vertical, and then you will get there. But it takes a lot of patience and a lot of, lot of upfront investment before you can harvest the fruit of your hard work. Okay. All right. And uh, okay, we, we came back a little bit to, to the investment again, right? So uh, how did you raise money? You said that you, you went to the angel investor first. Did it get easier from that point when you were able to, to show a product that's already grew a little bit? And mm. uh, did you go to people that knew CAD industry or... or were somehow adjacent to that um yeah or you just went to pretty much whoever would listen yeah so um yeah so so we raised i raised 
several rounds. And the first one was an angel round 50K in 2016. Then we raised a pre-seed round in 2016, again, uh, from, <clears throat> from an Austrian venture fund, uh, Speed Invest. And then we raised a seed round from, uh, from a British investor team in Rich Ventures, $1.3 million in 2017. Then we raised a Series A, six million. That was a small A round uh, in 2019, um, and then we raised a, a small B round, uh, 40 million dollars from from uh, the Series A investors and um, and EBRD. So I have a long list of investors. We have EBRD, Point Nine Capital, Creandum, um, uh, Enrich Ventures, uh, Speed Invest. We have a lot of. Uh, smaller angel investors, um, individuals who invest in Shaper. And we were, I, I was, I was very like lucky, I think. And I was also very intentional about like how we, how we raise money over time. And um, first of all, I was very lucky because we dodged this bullet from the last couple of years when valuations were sky high completely unreasonable, right. right? And we did not raise during that insane period of time because we didn't really need money, to be honest. Like, like Shaper historically has been always an extremely cash-efficient company. So we are well above 10 million ARR and we raised like $22 million. And out of that, that uh, $22 million, the, most of it is in the bank and we are barely burning any money. So that's like, that's, a, that's, un, like, that's a unusually cash efficient growth. <laughs> um, so, so fortunately we managed to dodge this bullet that many companies did not manage to avoid in the last couple of years that we did not raise that right. you know, 50x ARR, 100x ARR valuations. Um, and, and, you know, you know, like during those two years, raising money was very easy. Like basically anyone could raise any money <laughs> almost uh, with some, oh, some basic fundraising <laughs> skills. Yeah. Uh, it's not a good something. thing, actually. I'm not sure if that's, I, I don't think that's a good thing, to be honest. It's like, it sounds good. It's not. It's really not. It's not good for anyone. Uh, eventually, it's not good for companies. It's not good for investors. It's not, not good for anyone. Um, and, and also, we went through this roller coaster of fundraising that in 2016, 2015, it was really hard to raise there was like a small downturn uh, around that time. Uh, then it got easier and easier until like 2021 when it got like, not just easy, but like really like insanely easy. And then it got like really hard. Uh, and I raised in like, I raised in 2016 when it was quite hard. We raised in 2019 when it was still sane, but much easier than in 2016. And then I raised when it got extremely difficult. Uh, after the downturn, and I would say that fundraising is, you know, like that the, the complexity of fundraising is a dependency of two things. First one is that how quickly you are growing and how investable your company is. That's 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 the most important thing, and the and the other very important thing is the macroeconomic environment, right? And that's completely out of your control. And the macroeconomic environment, I would say, it's a it's a bigger factor <laughs> in fundraising than anything right. else. Um, and, uh, and that's like, you know, that's something that is completely out of your control. You cannot really predict when the next downturn is coming. I mean, 
you maybe you can, but maybe not, not with you know, like a hundred percent confidence. And uh, so, I I think that the best advice is that that you can get about fundraising is that you should be default alive, and by by default you should not need venture capital. And venture capital is a great catalyst for growth, but don't think of it as in like as your lifeline. It's because it should not be your lifeline. This philosophy was not very popular in the last few years, unfortunately. Right. Like uh, we like the um, the the startup industry. If that's a very, I'm not sure if that's a thing, but the startup industry or venture capital in general completely lost its its sense. Uh, and um, and you could say that um, like the way how we looked at venture capital. I mean, not as shaper, but like start the way how startups looked at venture capital was not was not healthy. It was not a healthy relationship. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but things are things are normalizing a bit and now we are getting back to a, a much more pragmatic uh approach i think right and obviously like when when you raise the first round maybe the second round your personal story is important right because they, they want to see that you know you're super passionate about the project uh is it still the case when you're raising round a round b or there are different metrics you know and it yeah, you're obviously passionate because you've been carrying on for, for a while successfully, but what's the uh, most important metric at this point that investors are looking for? Hmm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think you're right that probably in the earlier stages, storytelling is more important. And as the company matures, metrics become more important, right? But it's always somehow the combination of the two. And you know, like metrics are important, but they always hide certain things, right? Like they, they hide the the substance of the company. They hide the, uh, the the deeper meaning of the company, if there is any, right? Maybe not every company has a deeper meaning. Some some companies have a deeper meaning. Um, so so I think both are important. And it, but at a seed stage startup where there are no customers. Maybe you have a, like a crappy prototype or maybe not even that you just have an idea and you're trying to raise money. That's mostly about story value, right? Um, and yes, for like a series B company or a series B plus company, it's mostly about metrics. And, and those are the things that matter the most. But it also depends, obviously, on, on the investor's preference and the investor's mentality, right? Um, so um, investors are human beings too. And and human beings love stories. Some investors value stories more than other investors. So it really depends on who you are talking with, right? And and eventually, venture capital is a relationship business. So like building relationships is extremely important, especially when capital is scarce, and and um, and that's you know, like a, a good way of building a relationship is to tell an amazing story. Sure. Okay, so uh, let's uh, um, let's move on to to your customers because that's that's also something that you mentioned, right? Your customers shape shaper. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, this is something uh, I noticed um, just creeping around the website a bit. You are actually uh, answering the questions on the forum yourself, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. So. What part of you know of your job is communicating with your customers and actually making the decisions 
right? Because for me, like it, Shaper is is a pretty big company already, right? In my head, I would kind of think that you would outsource this, right? There, there will be product manager, project manager that uh, you would have this do, but it's actually you. So it's really interesting. What role does customer communication play in your roadmap for Shaper? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I hate generalizations, right? So like I'm, I'm going to say things like they were the ultimate truth, but I don't think that, that there is such thing as the ultimate truth. Like these are, this is really just my experience. But I think that many founders, as they scale, they stop doing certain things that they should have never stopped doing ever like really and 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 um like one of them is obviously like customer interactions that's like the venture capital is not your lifeline customer interactions are <laughs> it's that's going to be my most... quote <laughs> <laughs> um that's that. uh like 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 really like customer interactions is is that's how you eventually understand your business. You can look at all the metrics. You can like read uh, read uh, a summary from a user researcher, from a customer interview. You can like uh, do whatever you want. The really like the really like the, the most juicy stuff, the most exciting stuff, that the pivotal things, right? The, the things that that will transform your thinking around your business. You will hear those things in, in in like when you're personally interacting with customers. In, ideally, in a, in a in a relatively intimate way, <laughs> especially if you're doing it in like personally, right? If you if you uh, right. if you have a call with them, if you visit them, like that's how you learn the most. So uh, so that's something that I I think like a founder or a CEO should never stop doing, and I I think that. There are many, many great examples for that uh, from many different companies. Uh, one of my favorite ones that I've recently read about is that uh, Dara Kay, the CEO of Uber, uh, used the Uber uh, driver yeah. app for like a, a longer period of time to understand the struggles that uh, that, that their drivers have. That's like that, I think that's 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 an amazing example. Um, another thing that I do personally. Uh, quite a lot and and unfortunately I stopped doing it for a while and it was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made is uh, I'm still interviewing um, candidates um, quite a lot and I, and and fortunately more and more and more um, that's I think that's also something that you cannot ever completely delegate because you're a, you're building a software company software company is really nothing more than a bunch of people. <laughs> a software company doesn't really have anything, right? It's like uh, we don't have a factory, we don't have physical goods. We have IP, but you know, like even IP is worthless without people who can uh, develop it. So, so yeah, I, I think there are many, many things that that you should never stop doing by yourself. And 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 this, you know, like this um, this ivory tower CEO who is delegating everything and completely like um, not hands on and, and, and just like, like this, this theoretical operator who is just a resource allocator. I think that in reality, no successful CEOs are like that. 
like none of that, right? None of that. Right. And um, you just have to set your priorities and you have to allocate your time accordingly. I think they're much. It's much easier to uh, to delegate operational stuff uh, mm-hmm. when you are hands on with in with the most important areas. And I tend to be hands on with hiring. I tend to be hands on with product. I tend to be hands on with customer interactions. That the, I think these are enormously valuable activities and and inputs that you can you can get. Right. Oh, uh, it was uh, it was on the other podcast when uh, when they asked like, is it, will it be ever possible to substitute customer communication with like ChatGPT or any other uh, AI bot and. Uh, Mm. Uh, the founder told me, you know, it's easier to substitute uh, lawyers with chat with ChatGPT than customer support. So, <laughs> uh, mm. okay, I, I get the sentiment. I get the sentiment of that statement. I, I think it's uh, it's not entirely true. I think some kind of customer interactions can be automated with AI really well. Right. Some of them, but like building relation again, like relationship building is not something that you can do with AI. True, true. Okay. So what was the biggest revelation that came from a customer? Do you remember? Something oh, there pivotal. Were like, there were like many, 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 many. Like I, I think that the first one was um cannot even remember the first one. So like I had a lot. Like one of the most um uh, most important ones or maybe like like most um remarkable ones was Maybe in 2017, when I was watching a user test, a usability test of our onboarding, and and the guy was going through our user onboarding process, and he was struggling a lot, and I was just standing there watching him, and I like I just had this picture in my mind that holy crap, there are thousands of people every day downloading the app. And all of them are struggling like this guy. And that's like, oh, okay. And I was like, okay, now we have to stop everything. And we will need to invest more in, in, in onboarding. And that was, that was definitely a pivotal moment for the company. So that, that was a point where we like really like polished or invested a lot in, in polishing our onboarding process. And that was a very high ROI investment, <laughs> and that turned out to be the right uh, right uh, decision uh, by the time. That that okay. I still remember that pain watching him going through the onboarding and like, oh, you, why don't you press <laughs> the button? Like this is not how we imagined this this user flow, this user experience. Like so, like, um, but this is like a more formal customer interaction, right? So, and, and not but. Um, when you're watching someone using the product uh, on a on a usability test, but informal ones are equally insightful or maybe even more insightful when you understand like a customer workflow, like why they do what they do and and how they actually do it, uh, what what makes a product valuable for them, what is it that they actually like really really want in a product and and really appreciate in a in a product, how they think about like why they think that your price is low or why they think that your price is high. Uh, just by like changing. I read that some, thread on uh, your forum. Which one? About the prices. <laughs> <laughs> which, oh yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah. we have a, a lot of hobbyist users. We love them. We really do. 
but unfortunately it's enormously hard to come up with a price that is that works for them and also works for our business customers right so we are always trying to have a balance but unfortunately for many hobbyists um even like ten dollars a month would be too high so um yeah it's and and we are getting a lot of lot of uh feedback on that because obviously like in terms of volume hobbyists are the larger user base of 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 shaper 3d in terms of paying customer base they are a, a much smaller uh, fraction and that's that's actually that's one of the one of the uh, uh trickier things that we never really managed to uh to to figure out to be honest like how to create a, a pricing model that works both for hobbies but also doesn't cannibalize our uh, business customers we we spent a lot of time with that <laughs> and we, we right. didn't really manage to uh to figure it out yeah yeah but you're trying that's uh you know that that's what matters but then um of course, like obviously, the pricing thing is just one in a, in a pool of uh, many requests that you're probably getting from your customers and, and users. So, how do you make sure you're building something that really matters, and how do you make sure that you are still able to say, you know, we're not going to address that just yet? We are trying, like like with pricing, but you know, hold on. Yeah. Basically, the question is like how we create our product roadmap, right? Right. Like, how do you prioritize like what's being built and what's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, nice to have, but maybe not going into production? Mm. This it's like it's the art and science of product management, right? The scientific part is that we do a lot of user research. We have three user researchers working on understanding existing customers' needs and, and potential future customer needs. Uh, we also have you know, like a, a significant uh, uh, product design team that spends a lot, uh, a lot of time uh, with um, better understanding what our customers want and how they use the product. Um, we have uh, usage analytics. We understand how our customers statistically using Shaper and what, um, um, how they. Um, what are the features that that they use the most? What are the features that they discover or cannot maybe even find in, in Shaper? Um, so we have a lot of quantitative information and qualitative information that we turn into quantitative information. This is the scientific part, and then comes the the less scientific part, which is really like it's, it's the art of product management, which is your gut feeling and like how you incorporate your vision and how you incorporate your strategy into this this quantitative information because if product management was purely like a solely a, a quantitative discipline that it would be very easy right like that's not the hard part the hard part yeah. is like you need to have taste like good taste for like which is called product sensibility in product management you have to have good product sensibility to understand how to balance between between the vision and and between the quantitative inputs that you have and that's that's enormously hard. That's where, uh, that's that's where you know, like like uh, you need a, a fantastic uh, a product leader uh, or fantastic product managers or amazing product designers who d deeply deeply understand your customers and have this amazing um, in, intuitive like gut feeling that like like uh, how to balance between these two. 
and I don't really have a, a great answer <laughs> to to like how to incorporate your product sensibilities into into your product roadmap. It's a, it's a discipline, uh, it, it's it's a skill that you learn over time, and you you learn by failing and failing and failing and sometimes succeeding. Right. So there there is no magic pill that you know gets you uh, <laughs> no. the next the, best feature. No, no there <laughs> okay. isn't. Yeah. All yeah, right. No. If, so, if, 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 if there was, it would be very easy, right? So if, right. if product management was, well, then ChatGPT would be able to do it. And I, I'm pretty sure that some parts of product management will be replaced by ChatGPT, but certainly not all of them. Right. And well, that, that was supposed to be my last question, but we'll ask it now. So ChatGPT AI, uh, right? Obviously everyone's super excited and Replit just launched this, this new AI um, program where you can just basically talk to your phone, right? And tell it to, to build an app and it mm. builds it, right? Yeah. Uh, are you addressing any of those uh, trends and should we expect Shaper 3D to have some kind of um, so, something like this uh, in the future? Okay, I'm not telling anybody. Um, <laughs> I, not, uh, not everybody, but like a few thousand people, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I cannot deny nor confirm that we have something in the in, in the pipeline. So obviously, um, I'm an avid ChatGPT user. Um, and I'm quite, to be honest, I, I still like, I'm having a hard time believing that this is actually happening. Like a year ago, if you had told me that, hey, Ishtam, you're going to have ChatGPT. No way, right? I would not have believed it. Like it was in, in this, in the like, do you remember uh, or, or not just ChatGPT, but but all this generative AI stuff. Like, um, do you remember the um, the uh, TV series uh, CSI, where they, um, oh, yeah. yeah, 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 and you know, like everyone, like it, it was a meme that people were laughing on 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 the computer scientists who just told the computer the computer enhanced, and then suddenly the, the yeah. picture became like you know like like much higher quality and much higher resolution, and oh like then they they uh they managed to identify the uh, the uh, the uh, the suspect right and it was it was like hilarious it was a joke yeah. right and it's like quite literally happening and not just with with image processing but also also with you know like more like general ai stuff that's yeah quite unbelievable i think the implications are still unclear right is this uh going to be bigger than the internet right or smartphones uh is this going to uh favor incumbent companies or 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 startups is this going to impact everything or just a few areas of white collar bird right so it's it's not clear yet what the implications are and i think that <clears throat> it will probably take a few years to uh, to learn uh, what the implications are, but I'm certainly super excited, and we are looking into many different ways how we could apply these new technologies in in the world of design and manufacturing software. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity here to make 
our customers' lives easier, uh, remove a lot of friction from their workflows and completely automate many different repetitive tasks that otherwise would you know, like take them hours every single day. So we are very excited about it. Right. Oh, I think uh, I think it's the best case scenario. Like uh, it doesn't because everyone's talking on the on one hand uh, about ChatGPT and AI taking our jobs and everything. And on the other hand, you know, uh, the fact that ChatGPT uh, is not creative. Right. Uh, so uh, taking away the mundane tasks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that's another conversation. Uh, I had a, a podcast go on for another 40 minutes just because of that question. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, taking a, um, the repetitive tasks, like you were saying, uh, off someone else's day, you know, it's, I think it's brilliant. Um, okay, uh, what are you using it for? Um, how how do you me, stretch it, its creativity? Yeah. So <laughs> for me, it replaced Google mostly. I'm barely using Google anymore. Um, most And, and, and uh, I frequently find myself st starting to type in something to, to the search bar in my browser. And then I realize that, oh, I, I mean, this will take me probably like 10 minutes to find in Google. I will just ask ChatGPT, and I, this is happening more and more fr frequently especially with uh with gpt4 to be honest like i'm 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 finding higher quality answers uh than and faster than i can with google that's one use case the other use case is that when i when there is a topic that i want to explore and i would have to read a lot about it and instead of reading a lot about it I learned by 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 like turning ChatGPT to my personal expert and just learning learning about the topic and asking ChatGPT about it. Like um, like how, like uh, last week I was learning about um, um, inbound sales tactics and I mean I could read everything on Saster and I did actually right <laughs> and uh, and I could watch ten like a hundred hours of of, of videos. Or I can just like take the shortcut and and ask very specific questions to, um, right. from from ChatGPT. And I'm not saying that obviously it's not going to replace completely um, reading all disaster posts. Obviously, I, I I'm still reading it, but it's a uh, it's definitely accelerating my learning and it makes me look for the right things and it like expands my horizons. But it's like um, it's an enormously helpful tool that that saving me at like 10 20 hours a week at least right oh yeah i i actually absolutely agree uh about uh making it ask uh, making me, me ask the right questions because it makes the mistakes that keep me unsatisfied and then you know i go in with more questions and more questions and it just get to the bottom of it and sometimes to the answers that i never really expected which is super yeah. cool. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's um to me, it's um it's um yeah, it's an integral part of my my workflow for sure. Okay, so next time uh, I'm making a lamp, uh, <laughs> let's hope Shaper three D has this uh, saying that you can just uh, tell <laughs> tell it you know make a lamp. 
uh, hopefully it does no. anything else. Yeah. <laughs> That actually, so that's that's where I think actually ChatGPT and generative AI is not going to be as great as it is in other areas, solely because in engineering, something that looks like or almost like the the actual solution, it's it doesn't work. Like in manufacturing mm-hmm. and engineering, it it has to be the the thing, right? That the exact thing that you have in mind. It's like, it's something that is almost like what you want. It's, it's just not good enough, unfortunately, because it will cost you a fortune because you're not going to manufacture the right part. So, and these statistical models are going to be extremely helpful in accelerating a lot of parts of the design and manufacturing and engineering workflow. But I think this use case where you are generating a part based on a textual description, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, or at least okay. not the way how we we imagine it based on the current generative AI solutions. But it's definitely going to accelerate uh, the workflow a lot. But it's not going okay. to like make you depart. All right. So we're getting to uh, to the original question. If if you know if you were expecting uh, a similar solution from <laughs> Shaper three D, <laughs> see, yeah. I was I was asking the right questions. Okay. And uh, okay. So the um, the last question is um, something that I ask uh, all founders out there. Uh, what's so far the biggest win and the biggest failure, or if not a failure, you know, the biggest challenge. Oh, that's very broad. <laughs> um, the biggest failure. Hmm. The biggest failure was, I think, when we did lower the bar a little bit in hiring during the mm-hmm. pandemic. We went full remote for like 80 months um, and uh, we diluted our culture a bit. I wouldn't say it's not like it's not, it was not irreversible and it was not like uh, it's not the end of end of uh, 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 Shaper, but it was not the end of Shaper, but it was not worth it. Um, like you, you should never compromise with, with, with company culture and hiring bar, because it just never works out, <laughs> never. And um, I knew it. I knew this before the pandemic. Somehow during the pandemic, somehow during this fully remote period of time, I just for, forget about it. Uh, I, I forgot about it. And um, we learned the lesson, and <laughs> now we uh, we have the exact same very high hiring bar that we had before the pandemic but that was definitely a mistake to ever lower it even even just a little bit you should actually raise the bar every single year uh jeff bezos was right about it (laughs) um and i think this is how you should think about it and it it it's it, it just never works out right okay well makes sense what about the win the win I think the win is that eventually we did not screw up our company culture and we have a fantastic team that is super ambitious, hardworking, excited about the vision and the mission 
and they they work really really hard to uh to turn this company into an industry defining generational company and that probably that's the biggest thing i think that eventually you know like if if you build a company obviously it has certain financial implications but it doesn't really matter because eventually if you look back you know, like after a decade or or or, or a couple of a couple of decades the money is not the thing that will be the most exciting about your company the most exciting thing about your company is going to be all the relationships that you built the the time that you spent with your team all the successes that you achieved all all the failures that you went, went through together the story is the story that matters eventually right and i think that um we are very very fortunate that we have this team that is going to be you know like i think like these few years that we spent together i think for most people who are here is going to be an, a fantastic memory to the, like until the end of their lives and probably that's the biggest thing that we have ever had that's perfect that's amazing and that that's a great trend i mean honestly most of the founders that come to the podcast say that the biggest win is the team and the uh the biggest pride moment is the team so that's mm -hmm. uh that's a beautiful thing that i noticed well thank you so much i mean uh by the looks of it you're building something really great and you're doing it with the best people possible so i'm really looking forward to seeing what's what's next how you uh, maybe incorporate ai into shaper 3d and uh, all the best thank you very much and thanks for having me Thank you, Stvan. Take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.